tonight from the way that the Buddha answered questions is not particularly to give you another talk of Buddhist history, but rather to connect us with the ancient and timeless endeavor of practice, of awakening, and of the ways that human beings over these many centuries have worked with the development of their understanding. I don't really know how the Buddha answered questions, by the way. But what I do know is, in reading the sutras and the traditional texts, there is a, a very rich and beautiful presentation of how it said he answered questions that are really relevant to our own ways of understanding our minds, our bodies, and this path of practice. The context for these historical teachings, or sutras as they're called, is that most of them, or many of them, were given by the Buddha 2,500 years ago in India, either during his wandering time or the larger majority at his time of residence in some of the forest monasteries in which he lived, particularly one in which he spent 25 range retreats for 25 years in a row. And there he was surrounded in the forest by ordained people, by monks, by nuns, and lay people would come to visit. And he would travel and teach at other periods of the year. Many of these teachings were given particularly to the lay people, with, excuse me, to the monastic people, to the monks and nuns with whom he spent most of his time. So he's sitting in the forest after having uh, come back from alms round, perhaps, in the afternoon or evening, and people would come to him with questions, lay people or his own students. Although it's said that the Buddha and the mind of a Buddha was possible to know an enormous range of things about the world and about the history of worlds and consciousness and realms of existence and many other things. Tremendously powerful vision of mind. And although he was as well a consummate psychologist, that is a psychologist in understanding the psyche, the, the mind and how it operates, how it gets entangled and the various aspects of it, most profound understanding of the mind, yet all of the teachings as one reads them are directed in a simple and single way, and that is how we are caught or bound and how we can become free. There is only one concern in my teachings, said the Buddha, and that is human liberation or freedom. And just as the great ocean has only one taste, the taste of salt, so too the true teachings of the Dharma have only one taste, which is the taste of release or freedom or liberation, what was called the sure heart's release. 
And so all of these teachings, like the, the leaf of a Bodhi tree, which has a, a beautiful point at the end, every sutra and every verse, all of the teachings lead to the same point, to the same direction, which is that of our capacity for inner freedom. The first way the questions were answered at times was through silence. And so there's a famous story of a man coming to the Buddha and asking, saying, I don't understand this non-self stuff. Is it, is it that there was a self that I had and now it's gone? Or um, is it that I have one now and I need to get rid of it? Um, or if there wasn't a self, then why do I have to do anything about it in terms of practice at all? And he listed a whole series of questions, being confused about the question of non-self. The Buddha sat there, and Ananda, his attendant, was there after hearing the questions, and he sat in silence. And the man repeated the questions again. No response. Finally, the man went away. And Ananda turned to him and he said, Hey, Buddha, you know, you know, <laughs> you know the answer to these questions. Why didn't you answer this man? And he replied, he said that if I had given him an answer in a mind that was already confused as it was, he would have then speculated further, there was a self and now it has to be gotten rid of or there wasn't a self. He said, the most skillful answer that I could give, the most helpful answer to not further confuse this man was to remain silent. There are three beautiful points made in this way of response of silence. And you get the same response here very often. You may not know it, but I know it. Because you sit here, and for almost everyone, two or three or five or a hundred very important questions arise as you sit. But yet your interview isn't till the next day or the day after. And the response that you get to those questions from the outside is silence. The points that it makes are first, that one must ultimately come to one's own answer. You must come to look into your own experience to answer a question such as, what is the nature of self? Or the other kinds of questions that arise for you. And over and over again, the teachings of the Dharma are to turn back the mind to one's own experience, not by words or philosophy or sutras or great teachings, but by your own experience. The second is point of this silence is that although an intellectual answer um, might be accurate, it's not necessarily helpful. And at times it's better not to have any answer at all than to have some idea, some, some phrase, some thought that one uses to, to then dismiss such a profound question as, do I exist? Is there a self? We can solidify our, we can solidify our, our not knowing around some concept. So we have to first learn to trust ourselves, 
And secondly, realize the limitations of intellectual answers. And the third, realize that some questions such as this of non-self, the teachings of selflessness or of anatta, are among the deepest and most profound of the teachings of the Dharma. And it's not at all surprising to be confused. For it's a radical way of seeing the world. The whole world relates in terms of I, me, mine, this body is mine, these thoughts are mine, these possessions are mine. It's a totally radical new way to see, not in terms of I, or me, or mine. Is there a self? Is there one to get rid of? Is there none? What should we do about it? The second way that questions were answered was with questions in return. I'll give you a couple of examples. One point someone came to the Buddha seeing him surrounded by followers of monks and nuns and other devotees and said, I don't understand it. If your teachings are so good, how come they're not all enlightened? Only a few of these people seem to be enlightened and the rest are working hard and meditating and practicing and doing all the things and they're not enlightened. How come only a few are enlightened? Perhaps you'd like to ask that question yourself. And he said to this man, you come from Rajgir, isn't that right? The man said, yes. And he said, now we're in Shravasti, some distance away. He said, that's correct. He said, have you told any of your friends and people that you've met here in the town about Rajgir? The man said, yes, I have. He said, have you explained how far it is and what the journey is like? And the man said, yes, I have. And he said, and even though you've explained it to many, many people, people have heard about Rajgir, about its beauty, about what is offered there, they've heard about the, the long journey that it takes to go there. He said, of all these people that you've told, have many gone to Rajgir? The man said, no. And the Buddha said, just similarly to those questions, here I explain the goal of practice, of liberation or awakening or enlightenment, and I explain the path to it, those who choose to go will come to that destination. Those who follow the path of the Dharma will come to that destination. So you replied with a, with a question, a series of questions. Another time, replied with a series of questions. A man came to the Buddha and asked about death. Another very good question, that self there's how come, how come not more people are enlightened? What about death? He said, he paid his respects and he said, you are a Buddha, are you not? The man and the Buddha replied, yes. He said, good, I have some questions for you. I want to know how I should live and it seems to me that the way to figure it out is to know what happens to you when you die. What will happen to me when I die? 
So please tell me, will I end at the end of this life, or am I to be reborn, or what's going to happen? Wouldn't you like to know also? So the Buddha replied, he said, tell me, my friend, suppose that there are many lives to live, and that at death there is a process of rebirth. How would you want to live your life if that were true? The man replied, well, I'd want to be kind to people because it feels very good to me and they love me back, and it would create the conditions for people to be very kind to me in a future birth and for me to be happy. I'd want to be uh, generous as, as well as kind, uh, both because it feels quite nice now and it would create the conditions in the future for people to be generous back and I would be prosperous and wealthy and, and happy. He said, I would want to be kind or loving, I'd want to be generous. He said, I'd want to be um, very honest what I do because it creates a good feeling now of happiness and integrity and it would be the seeds for me to receive honesty and straightforwardness in the future. And most of all, he said, I want to be very much aware, try to be attentive in this life um, because I could appreciate it as it is now, and it would sow the seeds for great wisdom in the future. And the Buddha said, just so, my friend. He said, now, suppose that there is only one life, that this is it. When you die, it's over. How then would you want to live? The man thought, and he said, well, I'd want to be very kind and loving, since it feels very good, and I would receive that back from people, and since if this were the only life, I would like to extend myself in that way. And I'd want to be generous, since I couldn't take it with me anyway. I want to be able to give it to people and share it and have the joy of that generosity and their return of it to me. And I'd want to be particularly mindful and aware, since if this is the only dance there is, this is the only life, I'd want to be able to be as wise and appreciative and see it as clearly as I could. And the Buddha said, just so, my friend. And that was the end of their encounter. It again points to some very wonderful things, these answers which are questions. First, they point to the fact that we can already see a lot of what's true. Many of the questions we ask are things that we already know. In some ways, the Dharma is tremendously obvious. It's the most obvious thing. For example, death. Isn't death obvious? It should be. In the Bhagavad Gita at one point it's said, Krishna speaking with Arjuna, and Arjuna says, what's the most incredible thing in the world? Arjuna asks Krishna. Krishna says, the most miraculous, the most incredible thing in the world is that people can see other human beings dying all around them and think that it won't happen to them. The Dharma is immensely obvious. Death. 
Why do we get attached if we know we're going to die? I ask you. So one of the things that this kind of reply of questions back, it serves to reflect back that the Dharma is here for you to see if you look at your own experience. It says a couple of other things as well. Perhaps that death isn't such a big deal, you know, or certainly that our opinions about it are not. I mean, how do you know? And so some people believe that there is rebirth and some that some don't and, and base all kinds of speculation on it. And the real essence of Dharma is how we live moment to moment to moment and not our speculations or ideas. And in some way it points to that which is timeless or deathless, to an understanding of life that doesn't matter whether you believe you have many lives or that you believe that you have one life. To come to see in this moment, in this day, at this time, that which we can touch, which isn't caught up in the concepts of, or beliefs of one life or many lives or death or no death. Answers with silence. Answers with questions. Third way of answering was direct replies. Some of them were direct verbal replies, some of them nonverbal, and some of them are very forceful direct replies. As the Buddha traveled, he went to one, one small kingdom and met the prince or the king in charge who asked him a question, asked him a couple of questions. He offered him some wonderful things, and the Buddha said, no, no, I'm not interested, thank you, including, I think, his lovely daughter. And the king said, well, if you're not interested in riches or, or women or, or any of these things or, or uh, nobility, um, what are you interested in? The Buddha spoke about interest in inner peace or freedom or liberation. So the king said, well, what is the characteristic of this inner liberation? How do you explain this? How is it explained by the wise? The Buddha replies, not by any philosophical opinion, not by tradition, not by knowledge, not by virtue or holy works can anyone say that purity exists, nor by the absence of philosophical opinion or tradition or knowledge or virtue or holy works. Having abandoned all these without adopting anything else, let such a one calm and independent not desire any form of existence or non-existence. For one who thinks themselves equal to others, or more distinguished, or lower, they for that very reason dispute. But for one who is unmoved under these three conditions, for them the notions of equal, or better, or worse, do not exist. An accomplished person does not 
by a philosophical view or by thinking become arrogant, for they are not of that sort. Not by holy works, not by tradition are they led. They are not led into any of the resting places of the mind. For one who is free from the taints, there are no ties. For one who is delivered by understanding, there are no follies. But those who grasp after taints and philosophical views, they wander about in this world annoying people. What an extraordinary answer. He says, what is the characteristic of freedom? And the Buddha says, not by grasping tradition or views or deeds or philosophical opinions or religious opinions, nor by not grasping them, by having them, nor by the absence of them, rather, but being freed from all those, that whole realm, being independent, seeing things clearly as they are, not being attached to any point of view whatsoever. It's what, the, what Chuang Tzu said, the philosopher is wedded to their opponent. That if you cherish any point of view, then there's something for you to fight about. And it's not a place of freedom. Independence, clear seeing, non-attachment. Seeing of what? Seeing of the changing nature, the impermanent, empty, ungraspable nature of our experience. It points to not taking a stand anywhere to a tremendous capacity we have of learning inner freedom, of not grasping or identifying with a single thing. And the the image that's frequently used in the teachings is that of a lotus flower or a lotus leaf on which water falls and yet just drops off. It doesn't stick. So sometimes the reply was silence, allowing one to discover the truth for oneself. Sometimes the reply was as a question. Sometimes the reply was a direct answer, not by grasping any single thing is freedom to be found. There were other kinds of direct replies. Some were nonverbal, as in the, in the flower sermon, which I, either Sharon or Joseph mentioned the other night, of holding up a single flower as a way of teaching the truth about the world. Sometimes the replies were direct and very forceful. Which do you think is more, the flood of tears which wailing and weeping you've shed on this long way, hurrying through the rounds of birth and death, united with the undesired, separated from the desired? This or the waters of the four great oceans? More Long have you suffered the death of fathers and mothers, sons and daughters, and whilst thus you are suffering, you have indeed shed more tears than the waters in the four great oceans. That's quite a statement. There's a famous sutra 
given a famous discourse given by the Buddha where there were a number of people with him in Rajkir called the Fire Sermon. The Buddha says, what is burning? The eye is burning, the ear is burning, the nose is burning, the tongue is burning, the body is burning, the mind is burning. Burning with what? Burning with craving, with wanting of certain sights and sounds and smells and sensations. Burning with that kind of grasping. Burning with hatred, with aversion, with pushing away certain sights and sounds and smells and feelings and thoughts. Burning with greed, with hatred, with ignorance. Burning with the contact of things undesired, with the grasping of things desired. Those are very forceful replies. He taught that, and 1,200 people got enlightened hearing that. Listen carefully. Burning eye, ear, nose, tongue, body, mind. What do you do when something's burning? Reply with silence. Reply with questions. Direct reply verbally, non-verbally, sometimes very forcefully. Then the last, perhaps for those of us who are the slow learners in the crowd, is systematic exposition. I'll read you a, a longer sutra, just so you get a sense of the, of the teachings from the sutras. This is a sutra, it has two parts, the sutra on the refinement of the mind. Tonight I'll read one part, and then later on there's a second beautiful part to it. There are, he said to his disciples, there are, O disciples, gross impurities in gold, such as earth and sand, gravel and grit. Now the goldsmith, or his apprentice, first pours the gold into a trough and washes, rinses, and cleans it thoroughly. When he's done this, there still remain moderate impurities in the gold, such as fine grit or coarse sand. Then the goldsmith or his apprentice washes, rinses, and cleans it again. When he's done this, there still remains minute impurities in the gold, such as fine sand and black dust. Now the goldsmith or apprentice repeats the washing and thereafter only the gold dust remains. He now pours the gold into a melting pot and smelts it, melting it together. But he does not yet take it out, as the dross has not yet been entirely removed, and the gold is not yet quite pliant, workable, and bright. It is still brittle and does not yet lend itself easily to molding. But a time comes when the goldsmith or apprentice, repeating the melting thoroughly so that the flaws are entirely removed. The gold is now pliant, workable, and bright, and it lends itself easily to molding. Whatever ornament the goldsmith now wishes to make of it, be it an earring, necklace, golden chain, the gold can now be used for that purpose. 
Similarly, O disciples, in the case of a monk or a nun devoted to higher mental training, there are in them gross impurities, namely wrong conduct of deeds, words, and thoughts. Such conduct the renunciate gives up, puts away, makes an end of, not allowing it to recur. When they have abandoned these, there are still impurities of a moderate degree that cling to a monk or a nun devoted to higher training, namely sensuous, angry, and violent thoughts. Such a renunciate, a follower of the way, gives them up, puts them away, lets go, makes an end of them, relinquishes them. Finally, when he or she has abandoned these, there are still some subtle impurities that cling to a monk or a nun or renunciate devoted to higher training, namely thoughts about their relatives, their home, their country, their reputation. When they have abandoned these, there still remain yet further thoughts about higher mental states and experiences in meditation. Thus, concentration is not yet properly calm or refined. It has not attained to full tranquility, nor has it achieved mental unification. But there comes a time when the mind gains firmness within, settles down, becomes unified, collected, concentrated. Then, to whatever mental state realizable by higher knowledge and wisdom, the renunciate directs their mind in that very object, in that very time, they achieve the capacity of realizing it whenever the necessary conditions obtain. It's a very rich sutra, actually. First of all, it's a, it's a beautiful metaphor or analogy, the purification of gold. And gold is a wonderful image because it's one of the most timeless of the elements. And we're purifying the mind to find that which is pure and timeless rather than that which is caught up in our daily cares or worries or fears. Because it's a metaphor, it makes it clear that the truth is not in the language or what's described. It's simply an analogy. It's the finger pointing to the moon, pointing to our own experience. Now, did you notice something in this sutra? A very special thing in relation to the one I read before. What did you notice? It totally contradicted the previous sutra. In that one, it said, not by virtue or by good works or by concentration or merit is one liberated. And yet in this one, it said something entirely different. Let me go over it for you. It summed up the whole path of practice to that liberation which was pointed to in the other sutra. First, he spoke of virtue, of conduct, of making deeds and words and thoughts not based on selfishness or grasping or ignorance. So it's that first level of purification, gross impurities. Then secondly, the medium level, the abandoning of coarse, violent, greedy, sensuous thoughts, 
not getting, learning not to get caught in those. Starting with conduct, and then learning how after the purification of conduct, the beginning of the purification of mind, not to get so caught up in these states. This whole process is one of the purification of mind like gold. The body gets purer as it opens and gets more silent and less caught with its tension and its knots. The mind and the heart get purer as we get less entangled by our fear, our greed, our grasping. Then it goes to yet a more subtle level of purification, abandoning relative, home, country, reputation. That asks really a lot, doesn't it? To abandon relatives, home, reputation, country. What would that mean for you, for us to do that? If we want to be free in the fullest sense, somehow this too is required. And it doesn't mean not taking responsibility or caring for those things which need to be cared for, but not to be attached to them. And yet this isn't even the highest level in this sutra. There's conduct, then there's the disentangling of, of thoughts and feelings that are violent or greedy. Then there's the disentangling of reputation and family and country and name. And the most subtle is the abandonment even of our attachment to higher states of meditation, to joy, to rapture, to clarity, to bliss. What Trumpa Rinpoche called spiritual materialism or the corruptions of insight, learning not to get attached to anything that happens. Then it says, when, when this happens and conditions are ripe, realization or enlightenment occurs. What does it mean when conditions are ripe? When the factors of enlightenment, of calm, of clarity, of rapture, arise when the mind becomes open and balanced neither resisting nor grasping, comes to a perfect equipoise in which all things, you see the, the arising, the dependent arising of different phenomena flashing in the space of experience. You just sit and it all comes and it goes, unmoved, unshaken by all of these things, the mind in perfect balance, when that perfect balance is achieved, out of that comes liberation. So from this sutra, and you can feel it in yourself, our practice is one of purification, of speech, of conduct, of deeds, then of the heart and mind of our grasping and fears and attachments on a gross level and a medium level, and then our attachments to all the things in the world that we get caught up in, even our family, our reputation, our name. And finally, even our attachments in practice itself. It's not a question of good and evil, of sin and so forth, but it points to the movement from suffering and attachment and fear 
fear of loss, confusion. To perfect freedom. And so the last, the last way the Buddha answered and the way I'd like to close tonight is sometimes he spoke in poetry. And there's a whole set of teachings called the Sutta Nipata, which are the very earliest of all of his discourses, given in some cases when he was first wandering before there was a very well-established and settled order of monks and nuns. And this particular one, which comes from that period of the early wandering of the Buddha, points through its poetry and its beauty to really to the joy of non-attachment, to the joy of awakening, to the joy of doing that extraordinary thing that most people in the world would have no conception about, but that we can do, of really letting go. And there's a gentleness to it. It's kind of like a Taoist poem, the gentleness of the image of rain. And yet it's most uncompromising, as all of these answers have been. The Buddha is wandering, and he comes to a river, the Mahi River, and there he meets a rich dairyman, a rich herdsman, who's sort of rejoicing in the fact that he has a good life. He has wonderful family and herds and all of this. And they have this dialogue. And the herdsman says, I've boiled my rice and milked the cows. I'm living together with my fellows near the banks of the Mahi River. My house is covered, the fire is kindled. Therefore, if thou like, rain, O sky. The Buddha replies with his verse. He says, I am free from anger, free from stubbornness. I'm abiding for one night near the banks of the Mahi River. My house is uncovered, and the fire of attachment is extinguished. Therefore, if thou like, rain, O sky. The herdsman replies the other side, Gadflies are not to be found with me. In meadows abounding with grass, the cows are roaming, and they can easily endure rain when it comes. Therefore, if thou like, rain, O sky. And the Buddha replies, By me was made a well-constructed raft. I have passed over to nirvana, reached the farther bank. The torrent of passions can no longer touch me. There is no further use even for the raft. Therefore, if thou like, rain, O sky. And the herdsman responds again with his verse in the very chauvinistic uh, language of the time and culture. He says, My wife is obedient, not wanton, said the herdsman. For a long time she has been living together with me. She is winning, and I hear nothing wicked of her. Therefore, if thou like, rain or sky. And the Buddha's reply is wonderful. He says, My mind is obedient delivered from all attachment and worldliness. It has for a long time been well cultivated and subdued. There is no longer anything unskillful arising in me. Therefore, if thou like, rain or sky. Then at once a shower pours down, filling both the sea and land. And 
hearing the sky raining, the herdsman speaks. It is no small gain but great benefit to us that we have met and seen, understood the teachings of the Blessed One. And uh, as usual, he takes refuge and, and uh, becomes a disciple of the Buddha. And um, the, the rain continues to be sweet and he becomes enlightened. And the end of the sutra is, it is as if, the, as if a lamp which had been overturned is set upright or that which has been hidden is revealed or that which was cloudy has been made clear. And so, <coughs> as in all good Buddhist stories, there's a happy ending. Every way of answering, of silence, which is mostly what you get here in your sittings, of reflecting the question back, of a direct and clear reply or a forceful one, the eye is burning, the ear is burning, or of the poetry, or of a systematic exposition, all point to only one thing, one taste. This is attachment, and this is that which leads to our genuine our genuine inheritance in this life of freedom, of liberation, and of joy. Now that you know how the Buddha answered questions, there's no need to come to any further interviews. <laughs> I feel like I'm always saying the same kind of thing to you know that it's a precious opportunity. Um, it is. It's very precious that you should use the time and the space in a really full way. At this point, again, I'd just like to remind you of a few basics. Work with continuity. Part of that means, again, perhaps slowing down. Some people, by the nature of group practice week, got speeded up again a bit, and that's fine for that time. Slow down again. Really take your time and be with each thing. Let go of one moment and be fully in the next. Die from one moment to another, and then be born in each new moment, with each cup of tea, with each opening of the door. One moment to another to another. Let go of the past and be there completely. Slow down work with some continuity. Let yourself sit longer if you feel able to. If a sitting ends in 45 minutes and your sense is that you're not sleepy or dull, but you're still alert, sit longer. Sit for an hour, an hour and 15 minutes, an hour and a half. Then when you get up, when you get up, very mindfully, see if you can carry that, that presentness into the walking. Do a period of walking. Come back and sit again. Start to string it together. Pay attention to your sleeping. If it's possible for you to sleep a little bit less and still be alert during the day, then stay up a little bit later or get up a little earlier. In some ways it's a kind of a serious talk but my own mood inside, um, for some reason I feel very joyful. I love to talk about this. 
and I feel very happy for you, even though it's hard and it goes up and down and it's got its difficulties. Be continuous, pay attention, sit longer, take your time and slow down, and enjoy it. See if you can do it in some way as, a, as this incredible, although difficult, dance that it is. Thank you. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.